0: please visit SoundsTrueFoundation.org. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today my guest is Dr. Christian Conti. Christian is one of the country's most accomplished mental health specialists in the field of anger and emotional management. He's one of only a handful of people who have a Level 5 Anger Management Certification, which is the highest possible level. Christian currently trains correctional institutions, sports teams, and organizations in the practical application of his Yield Theory Anger Management program. And with Sounds True, Dr. Christian Conti has written a new book called Walking Through Anger. In this conversation with Christian Conte, he explains yield theory and the three steps, listen, validate, explore options. It sounds simple, but in my experience, it's pretty deep work and hard to master. Here's my conversation with a gifted guide, Dr. Christian Conte. To begin with, Christian, I'd love if you could share with our listeners how you became an anger management specialist. What led up to that?
1: That is a wonderful question, and I wish it could just be a really quick one-story answer, but the reality is it's complex, but it's, it's kind of beautiful.
0: Please, tell us the whole thing. Don't
1: rush. Well, so when I was really, I was reflecting on this, this very same question. Um, when I was going through the process of writing this book and I thought back to my childhood, there were two incidences that I think really began leading me to where I, where I am today. The first one was this, my, uh, my dad was a professor of earth science. And so I was a haughty teenager and I, I said to him as a teenager, Hey dad, what's the fun in studying rocks? And he said, uh, well, if you only ever live on one planet in your life, don't you think you ought to get to know that planet? So I was like, uh, oh, it kind of made a lot of sense. So later on in college, when I was kind of, you know, trying to find, I was lost, trying to figure out what to study. Um, I thought about my dad's advice and the path he took. and But I, I put a little twist on it. I thought, well, I'm only ever going to live with me my whole life, so why not get to know myself? So I studied, I started to study uh, psychology at that time. So that was the first thing that I think really even led me down this. But then I went back just even a little bit farther. And I thought about advice my mom gave me. So my mom uh, was this, is this incredible person. She was an, a, a disciplinarian as a teacher. She was a high school English teacher. And I was going to be attending the high school where she taught. So I went to school in the 80s where kids would circle up and fight just like if if young people today don't know that, 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 and I hope they don't have to know that same kind of stuff that, I, that we went through, but they would circle up and fight. And my, and my mom said to me when we got to the high school, she said, listen, I better never find out that you ever watched a fight and didn't step in and break it up. And listen, I, my mom might be small, but I was definitely more afraid of my mom than I was of uh, the kids. So I would step in all the time. I'd be breaking up fights. Kids would be mad at me. Let them fight. Let them go. And now you go, you want to face my mom, you do that. So I, so I think that I learned early on when I see conflict, don't run from it, go toward it and combining that journey of personal growth, going into the depths of my own psyche and learning about myself, focusing constantly on what I can learn about me. And then realizing that when something goes wrong, step in and do something. I think those were the, that's kind of the impetus to get me in the direction I was going on a more recent level, um, when I was a professor, when I first started to be a professor, um, I, I sat in on some pe- uh, groups where they were doing anger management, and I went incognito. So I was just in my t-shirt and jeans, and I'm a six foot, two hundred and fifty pound, bald guy with tattoos and a beard. I looked like everybody other everybody else at a biker bar, uh, and I I, I went. And I sat in on this group and I, no one knew I was there. Like they just thought, you know, I was a part of the, the group. I was one of the guys in the group and two things shocked me and really set a fire in me to change things. The first was this, uh, the teacher was extremely pejorative. He was, he was condescending. He would talk down to them. Some of you guys are psychopaths. You're never going to change. I thought, my goodness, how somebody's supposed to learn and change and do something different if that's what they're being told? And then the other piece was this: some of the guys in this anger management group, who had been, you know, com- convicted of a violent crime, were out on parole at this time. But they were, it was outpatient, but they had to be at these groups. Well, in order to get through the group, they had to write what was called a letter of accountability. And the guys in the back of the room were looking at a guy who was about to graduate the group, and they were looking at his letter. They said, "No, don't say these words." change this, erase this, say this. And so he's back there scrambling, hurry up, writing exactly what he was supposed to write and didn't care. It Did, wasn't in, involved in the class, you know, it was kind of because obviously the teacher's shutting him down and others down. And so that's what he turned in. And of course it fit the bureaucratic mo- model of give you a piece of paper to, so I can demonstrate your accountability. And he passed and I thought, well, he hasn't learned anything different and he was in dom- involved in domestic violence and the odds are he's going to, be involved in domestic violence again. And so I started to take over these groups. And after I, I did a study on guilt there many years ago, and it was effective. And this is really how I kind of got started. And, and, and I think I just, I resonated a lot with the guys. I mean, the reality is I am a tougher looking guy. And um, I, I definitely have physical strength. And I think guys, when it comes to, those anger management groups where especially with many of these men, intimidated people in their lives. Um, they they kind of respected that at face value at first. So I kind of was able to reach them. And, and what I'll share with you today is it's nothing about acting intimidated or acting tough. But I also don't deny the reality that obviously when I walk in and started, I mean, listen, my first day in this group, I was running the group, my first day running it. Guy comes in, he goes, uh, they're forming a line. I said, I said, I pointed to a guy that was coming in the door. I said, go ahead and, and sign in here. He said, no, go ahead, you sign in first. I said, no, my man, I'm Dr. Conti. You go ahead and sign in. And he said, oh, I'm Dr. Conti too. And I said, well, <laughs> uh, actually, I am actually Dr. Conti, so I'm going to need you to sign in and go ahead and sit down. Um, so I think the guys kind of were like, okay, this guy's, he's here with us. And my whole philosophy on life has been, my tagline has been, there are two kinds of people in the world, Tammy. There are people who have issues and dead people. So if you're currently alive, you have issues, so do I, so does everyone. So my approach has always been, I'm with you. I'm not better than you. I'm not worse than you. We're all in this together. I might have come across some information that is valuable to you, and I am have an opportunity to share this with you. But of course, we could turn around and you could teach me something in the next moment. Um, And I think guys really liked that. And not just guys, the men and women really liked this, um, you know, not this expert top down, but um, we're here together. Like, let me just shine light. Mm -hmm. Let me shine some light on what's going on. Mm -hmm. And people really responded to that.
0: Well, and, and of course, someone who's really angry, that could come in any kind of package. It could be, you know, a four foot tall, skinny person, but in a way you were kind of Built for the work you're doing as an anger management specialist, as you describe yourself, I can see that.
1: And I, I think you're, you're. I believe with all of me that you're one thousand percent right. It does not matter the size. I just think initially when I was thinking about why did I get into this, I think I, I, it was it was such a good fit when I when I was there that I kind of just kept going deeper and deeper into the anger management. However, I always like to say it's not just anger management, it's emotional management because so much more goes into anger, so much more.
0: Mm -hmm. And we're going to talk about that. Briefly, you mentioned that there was a study done on yield theory and yield theory is the approach that you've created that describes emotional management in general and how you work as a counselor. So All right, Dr. Christian Conti, introduce (laughs) yield theory to our listeners.
1: Okay, wonderful. So yield theory is an approach to communication that is predicated on meeting people where they are, leading with compassion, and using conscious education to help circumvent the fight-or-flight response. So maybe even more simply, it's this. It's about... Interacting with people with compassion and conscious education it's it's recognizing that you cannot just you can speak just to speak, and that's great, and lots of people do that all the time but it's really about getting around people's defensiveness in the heat of emotions and being able to speak in ways that actually connect with them so it's it came to me you know in nineteen ninety eight I had this i've been an avid meditator my for I'd say my whole adult life and out of a meditation, I kind of had this vision that if somebody was in a car and they were going down the highway the wrong way and you wanted to stop them and you're in a, you're in a car too. And you think, well, I could have a head on collision. I would stop them. Sure. You'd stop them. One or both of you might get awfully hurt, or what if this happened? And this is, this is just a hypothetical, just a thought experiment. But what if you were to drive your car and merge with them, kind of at that yield sign, and yield with them, merge with them, and you're driving along the road in the same direction they're going, side by side. And eventually, they start thinking, hey, listen, this is going to be a long trip. Let's save some gas. They invite you into their, their car. Again, hypothetical. So now you're in the passenger seat and you're starting to see out of the same windshield they're seeing out of. Now you're starting to get a little bit better understanding. And then eventually they get tired on this long journey and they trust you to drive. And in that spot you can help steer them down a a different path. So that was the initial kind of analogy of like really meeting people where they are, not where you want them to be or think they should be, but meeting them where they actually are. And really trying to see the world from their perspective. So I thought of this early, Tammy. I thought, listen, if I, I love them, the idea, if I walk a mile in someone else's shoes, but this goes deeper than that. I imagine, what if I spent every day as the other person? In other words, not just my cognitive functioning, but their cognitive functioning. Not my ability to experience emotions, but their affective range? And what if I had their life experiences? And what I've come to is, I believe I would have made every single decision that that person made. And of course, this is just a hypothetical. And of course, we can't have a, this is the answer. But what we can do is this, when you realize that, you know, instead of saying, well, I would have done things differently, or I had a tough life, and I didn't do this, we say, wait a minute, if I really am that person, how can I say I would have done anything differently? Mm-hmm. And just that exercise is about saying, I'm gonna put aside my own stuff and recognize, I don't need judgment here, I just need to assess the situation and figure out what I could do from this moment forward.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So this 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 is powerful thing to really grasp because we're not saying we condone what they're doing, because you have to remember, I specialize in working with people convicted of violent crimes. They do things that are so awful, I wouldn't even talk about it in public to make people have that in their psyches. But how do I do that work? I do it because I imagine if I was them, I never met anyone who woke up and just did things to hurt others that didn't have things happen to them.
0: Now, this idea of meeting people where they are, seeing through their eyes, you know, walking in their shoes, it's so, so powerful, Christian. And I want to talk about a little bit of why it's so hard for people. And, you know, quite honestly, I find it hard when people are really emotional. It could be anger, but it could also be something like grief or sadness. And when it's so intense, it can be hard for me not to jump directly to, you know, wanting to fix their situation, to actually join with them. It's unbelievably painful. So I want to start there because how do you help people develop that capacity to be with that much intense emotion, whether it's anger or grief or whatever it might be?
1: I really, I just love that question because it, it comes from a really good place to want to fix other people's emotions. It comes from such a beautiful, loving place. But the reality is we don't fix other people's emotions. All we can do is make ourselves a safe space and we can become a mirror to help them see themselves and help them get them into the position they, they is best for them or get them out of what they, what they're in, in that suffering. And I think that, so I, I talk about these five errors of communication that we make. And one of them is called the air of omnipotence. When we believe we're responsible for what others do. And this is an air and it's omnipotence, all powerful, this air of belief that we're all powerful, that we can fix it. I can't fix it. I can't pull you out of hell, but I can sit in the fires of hell with you. You know, compassion is about suffering with the person. It's not about fixing the person, it's about suffering with the person. And in a sense, and I'll explain it as we talk, but we have things in our brain such as mirror neurons that help us really get to the heart of empathy with watching what's going on with others. But I believe the reason why I can fit in that is this. This is is really what it is. I believe in the human spirit. I believe people are strong enough to get through what's being presented to them. I really, truly believe in people. And so, you know, more than 20,000 hours of clinical experience, people have asked me, have you ever cried with a client? Now, if I'm being completely honest, there were times when, uh, I was driving home. Many times i was driving home from work where the stories were so overwhelming that I burst out then, but I never cried when I was with clients. And the reason is twofold. One, I wanted to be a rock for them to be able to show them, look, I'm, your problems aren't so bad that your counselor's breaking down. And two, I realized, hold on a second. There is a beginning, middle, and end to every emotional situation. And I believe in the strength of the person in front of me that they will get through that beginning, middle and end. I believe in them. So I don't need to, I think it's only our egos that really want to truly fix it. Cause then we're like, hey, look, I helped you. And for me, whether or not I help you or not, what matters is can I shine light and can I be a space of compassion for you?
0: Do you think that if somebody is not at home Cannot hold a space for the depth of their own anger or sadness or whatever the emotion is. That that's what is the impediment to suffer with another person. That we have to be able to hold that space for ourselves. Yes,
1: I mean, that's why. That's why. For me, I tell say all the time in day, the focus is on you controlling the only person over whom you actually have control, and that's you. If you can get to know yourself well enough, you'll start to understand what you're projecting on others, how your defense mechanisms are kicking in, what's getting in the way, what are the obstacles. And the more you can kind of clean on yourself and get yourself in a space of clarity, um, the, the, the more reflective you're going to be able to be to kind of be that mirror for others.
0: Mm-hmm. cuz you know you mentioned that you work with violent criminals and how in your own upbringing your mother said to you at a young age you know when there's conflict you step in you be the peacemaker but i think for a lot of people they grew up in environments where conflict was something to be avoided it was you know i mean a lot of people are conflict avoidant that's what i'm conflict avoidant i go the other way mm-hmm. and now if somebody's really angry the last thing such people may want to do is hold the space for someone's anger. They're not used to that.
1: Right, right, right. And, and so I talk about this way. I said there are two different kinds of people. I think there are two worlds we live in. One is what I call the cartoon world. The cartoon world is our world of shoulds. People shouldn't be responding like that. People shouldn't take that perspective. People should see the world the way I do. And then we look at what I call the real world, which is how the world actually is. And as long as we align our expectations with the cartoon world, we're let down. Why why aren't they doing? They should be doing this. But when we can learn to align our expectations with the reality of the way the world is, then we can be more prepared to enter it. So not dealing with conflict doesn't necessarily make it go away. In fact, it, it rarely does. It usually makes it build up. So it's not a matter of not addressing it, but I think the reason why people tend to shy away from conflict is on the deepest neurological level, conflict can lead to anger and violence and ultimately as a self-preserving being, when we know that something might lead to violence that could threaten our existence, I think it's a continuum. And so we trace it all the way back and say, wait a minute, now we're in this present moment and something says as soon as there's conflict I don't want this conflict it's going to be uncomfortable I'm not going to like it but yet I would I would ask you this and I would like to ask others out there listening would you say that you part of why you are who you are today is because you were able to overcome conflict sure like like there are things in your life that you had obstacles and and you you didn't become who you are by having everything fall into place for you Sure. And so if we know that we didn't just have everything handed to us on a platter, we had to work for, we had to overcome that stuff, then I say, why not practice how we can approach people in those situations without feeling so vulnerable? And this is what I feel like I arm people with in walking through anger, because here's a way to Communicate with somebody who's angry. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy to if you don't like the anger on the stuff, because it's not to say that I like the yelling or the anger, especially if it's directed at me. Um, but I understand that it's not personal. It's it's that person. It's what that person is experiencing on the deepest level. It's not personal toward me because people can't give you what's not inside them.
0: Okay, take us through the yield theory in action. Maybe you could give us an example of how you would apply it in a in a real life situation, working with someone who's really angry about something.
1: Okay, um, so um, the core of yield theory. I'll give you just a real life example first, and then I'll break down what the core of it is. So again, it's about meeting people where they are, and 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 the. Let me just say the core. Fundamental actions are listen, validate, and explore options. So one day I was in um, uh, maximum security prison. It was actually a supermax, and an inmate got sent to the hole because he threatened a teacher's life. So he, he he's down there in the hole. He's furious. I mean, enraged. He's screaming, banging, and uh, uh, they asked me to talk to him. So I went over to. They so called me down to come to this unit. So I come down in this unit, and I hear him yelling and screaming. So I said, "What? tell me what happened. He said, the teacher took my paper and, and and ripped it up in front of everybody in front of the class. Now, I don't know whether or not the teacher picked it up and ripped up his paper in front of everyone. I have no idea if this happened exactly like this or not. I know that this in this moment, this is his perception. So I said to him that's so messed up. geez. If someone, and remember, let's watch how I say this. If someone picked up my paper and ripped it, that would be awful. He said, it was, it was, he said so messed up that she did it. And I said, so I, yeah, I can't, I can't imagine what you're experiencing right now and what you're going through. So what, what did you do? And he said, uh, I said, cause I know personally, if someone, if I put effort into something and someone ripped it up and I felt foolish, I would certainly feel some sort of way. So he said, um, well, I told her that I mean, I might have said something like, um, like, like lucky, like I take medicine and stuff like that. I, you know, it's it just something like that. And I said, wait a minute. So, did you tell her that you, she's lucky you take medicine because of what you'll do, like alluding to you could hurt her? Then, and he was like, something like that. And I said, something like that, or was that what you said? And he goes, yeah, that's what I said. I said, okay, okay. I said, you're angry. You were angry. So, yielding is about push-pull philosophy. Aikido is about if I push you, instead of you pulling, uh, pushing me back, you would pull me and then I'd go flying. Or if I try to pull you, instead of resisting, you'd jump, you'd push me and I'd go, so, so you're going to watch this flow as we're talking. So I said to him, um, okay, so let me ask you a question. You're not, uh, you're not a father, are you? He said, oh yeah, I have two kids. I said, you don't have girls, do you? And he said, uh, oh yeah, I got two girls. So I said, oh, my man, I said, you know, I have a daughter, and she's she's my life. I love my little girl more than anything in this world. He said, oh, man, me too. I said, I have a question for you. If somebody came up to one of your little girls and said, man, you're lucky I take meds or else, and it was a man, no less, that was a lot bigger than they are, what would you do? He said, me and that guy got a problem. And I said, uh, you understand where I'm going? He said, I see where you're going, Doc. I said, I have a question. Listen, I said, listen. In your intentions, you might very well have not intended to mean what you said, but people see your actions, not your intentions, and that teacher, she didn't know whether you were going to or not going to, whether or not all she could go on is the actual threat. Now, this time, by this time, this guy's ridiculously calm. He's shaking his head like, yeah, you're right, you're like, great. Right. And I said, so I have a question, because when I first got there, it was like, I'm not supposed to be down here, this is messed up. I said, do you do you think you're, you're where you're supposed to be right now? He goes, yeah, I should be here for this. I said, do you, do you see what I'm getting at right now? He said, I do. I said, at the end of the day, you could get through this situation and you could say the old things you used to say, maybe try to get out of it, fight a case, this and that. All I'm asking you to do for your own growth is look at it. Is this, was this the best reflection of you? And if it wasn't, can you really be ready to take feedback? Because that's what growth is about. He said, man, doc, I definitely want to show I have growth. I said, it sounds like you got a good answer for you.
0: Wow. Very masterful. That was so masterful.
1: I kind of like that you use that word. And First of all, thank you a lot, because I believe that we master what we practice and have been practicing joining with people. Now, when I join with them and try to see from their eyes, I'm thinking like, I do it instantly. A lot of times when I train officers or corrections officers, they'll say, well, I don't have time to go into all, I say, listen, it takes no more time. It's actually faster because the faster I see things from someone else's perspective, the one we're angry, we want to be heard. We want to be understood and, or at least people trying to understand us. And when you can create the space for someone to feel understood, what they do is they move from the emotional center, their limbic system in the center of their brain, and they move to the frontal cortex, the higher level thinking and decision-making areas.
0: I'm going to read a, a quote from Walking Through Anger that describes what you're talking about here. Here's the quote. People don't calm down because you tell them to. They calm down because you've given them the opportunity to express what was in their limbic system. They calm down because you've validated them enough to help drain the limbic system, which allows them to move from their emotional center to their higher level thinking center. So explain this idea of draining the limbic system and how the actions of yield theory do that.
1: Yes, I love this. So I kind of, as you'll see with walking through anger, I... I definitely teach in parables. I use tons of analogies, metaphors. Um, so so one day I was trying to really think I a a really simple way, and trust me, I love to study neurology, but I know neurologists out there could be cringing anytime someone tries to simplify it too much because the brain is so complex. But when we think about the limbic system, which is involves areas of the brain that are involved with emotions... Even things like the hypothalamus, like when you're hungry, when you're overly hungry, uh, tired, you know, overheated, this is in this center. So this is in your emotional center. Well, if we were to look at the brain and we do a brain imaging, there are areas of the brain. Now, the whole brain is always active, but there are areas that are more active at times. And so if someone is highly emotional, there are areas in the limbic system that are going to be more lighted up than the frontal cortex, the higher level thinking. So what I said with drain the limbic system, this is just a metaphor, so I don't want people thinking I'm out there saying there's water in the brain, but here's my metaphor. Imagine that the limbic system was filled up with water, and that water represented the the anger, the emotion. And let's say you had a a drain there, and so you turn on the, the nozzle, and the water starts to leak out, but then you just hurry up and turn it right back off. So you just let a tiny bit of that water out. Well, there's still a whole lot of energy right there in that that limbic system. But when I say drain the limbic system, what I mean is you kind of open up that valve until all the water comes out. And once the water's out of that area, and again, I'm not saying there's water in the brain for real, now that it can go to the other areas where it's needed, such as your frontal cortex. But we can't simultaneously be calm and angry. We're going to be either in a spot where we're making good decisions or more emotional. And so I try to help people drain that limbic system. So now they're ready. They're more prepared. Honestly, Tammy, it's one of the reasons why when I talk about parenting, I say I literally have never yelled at or spanked my daughter ever. And she's 14. She's the most beautiful, incredible human being I've ever met. But one of the reasons why I say not to yell is if we're trying to teach children and we know they learn in the front part of their brain, then yelling at them is going to activate a part of their brain that we don't want to be listening. In other words, parents will come to me all the time in therapy and say, well, I screamed to them a hundred times. They still don't listen. I'm like, well, maybe, maybe the method you're using to get this message across is not working.
0: Yeah. So then how do you engage in a disciplinary action when it's needed?
1: Oh, definitely. So discipline, absolutely essential, absolutely essential. And, you know, we live in this world where uh, an is just in the foreground. We go from one extreme to the other. So people have a tendency to think, well, if you don't yell and scream and, and hit, then you must not discipline them. And that's not even remotely true. So my four C's uh, that drive this are choices, consequences, consistency and compassion. In other words, there's a choice. We all have a choice. So if, you're, if we're talking about this with parenting, your children your children always have a choice. Sometimes parents say, no, they don't. They have to listen to me. No, they still have a choice. Now, there's a consequence if they don't listen. If that's what you're getting at, absolutely, there's a consequence. But there's a consequence either way. Whatever choice they make, there's a consequence. And if, as a, if you're enforcing the rules, whether you're a guard, whether you're an officer, whether you're a parent then you're going to want to be consistent. So if you say something, you're going to want to follow through because you're teaching people how to treat you. And then what I emphasize the most is compassion. In other words, you can do all of that with compassion. If I recognize, and, and I've made this my the most important thing in my life to do, that every interaction with my daughter, I'm teaching. My job is to teach. And so, you know, children don't aren't born in this world knowing everything. Our job is to teach them and guide them. And if they mess up, if they don't know, then we want to guide them. And I just think time and again, what's the most effective way to teach? Is it screaming and yelling, or is it um, shining light and helping them be internally motivated to
0: learn it? Again, very masterful. You know, you have a great knack, Christian, of simplifying things that can seem quite confounding.
1: Again, that's like, one of the biggest compliments, because I really I want to really, really want to share this with you. When I was young, uh, my parents pushed me academically. You know, I was blessed to have a really high IQ, and a lot of expectations come with that. And my parents pushed me to read a lot, uh, which I love and I'm so grateful for. I'm so thankful for the parents I have. Um, but, you know, I remember the first time I encountered G.W.F. Hegel, and <laughs> this German philosopher who writes in such a convoluted way, that by the time you're done with the first paragraph, you you think you you spun around in your chair 20 times because you feel dizzy. And I thought to myself when I read Hegel when I was young, I said, you know what, when I get older, I'm never going to make things complicated for people. I'm going to make things so that I can teach them to anyone. And I truly believe that if I can't share this with a five-year-old, then I don't know it well enough. And I own the responsibility for that.
0: Sounds True is proud to present Understanding Narcissism Summit, a free online series from November 4th through the 13th, featuring 20 world-renowned therapists, authors, researchers, and spiritual teachers. To learn more, please visit SoundsTrue.com. So just to keep going here, I think you have a way of explaining it that makes it really easy to understand. But in my own experience, it's not easy to do. And I'm going to have to come clean and be a little confessional here for a moment, which is my wife of 18 years, we have a beautiful marriage, she's a very emotional person. And I'm, I would say in general, maybe more of a thinking type. When she gets extremely emotional about something... What she wants more than anything is for me to follow some type of yield method. She wants me to merge with her and feel what she's feeling. And it's the last thing I want to do. I think, oh, my God, she is so freaked out. She's crazy right now. I'm not merging with that. No way. So I would like more help in understanding how to do that, because even though it sounds easy, take her perspective, blah, 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 I am scared of the intensity of what she's feeling.
1: Well, it's actually more intense when you're resisting. Um, you just think of anxiety and, the, and how resistance impacts anxiety. But l- let me say it like this. So y- in your, your cartoon world, you're saying she shouldn't be so emotional right now. <laughs> she shouldn't have you know, has been that intense about that issue. That's your cartoon world. The real world is she is doing that. And again, as long as you're trying to force her into your cartoon world, now you're starting to butt heads with her. But if you can just genuinely meet her where she is and say, you know what, this is for whatever reason causing this, what you'll find is I believe she will be like, my goodness, this is so much like and now she doesn't have a need to go that intense. See, I, a really powerful lesson from family therapy is this. We, in systems theory, we play a role in every interaction that we have. So every time you and your wife have a disagreement or you're in that type of situation, you are playing a role. Even if you come home and she's in that spot and you, you just walked in the door, you still play a role because you two have a history. You know that there are ways she might respond to things. She knows there are ways you might respond to things. And so once we realize, instead of trying to make it linear. No, it's just her, it's just whatever happened in her life and her. And you realize it's circular causality, all of these things merge. Now when you go in, you go, wait a minute, there's something I'm doing to not make her feel comfortable enough and that she feels like she has to go to such an extreme to have me see that she's in emotional pain right now. See, because that's one of the reasons why people respond so intensely, is they're in pain. And look, if I cut my arm, you can see how big the cut is you can imagine I'm in pain but when it's anxiety depression fear how big is that nobody knows so you 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 express it how best you can and if you don't feel like you're being heard many times people express it in really intense ways saying please look notice this pain and and my honest you know this is what I love about what I do is I'm easy to find so if what I share with people doesn't work believe me the world will let me know in a hurry But what I would invite you to do is next time that she's struggling in that way, kind of really look at it as she's struggling in that way. She doesn't have to respond the way your brain would respond to it. She doesn't have to respond the way your experiences would teach you to respond to it. She just has to respond the way she is. And your job is to connect with her in that moment, try to circumvent that fight or flight and realize being there with her, although it's harder for you. Remember, being tough isn't the easy thing. It's taking the more challenging road. But the reward lies at the end of that, too. If you're able to discipline yourself to say, no, she doesn't have to come to my cartoon world. Let me go meet her where she is. What you'll find is a radical shift in her feeling safe. And my guess is a less of a desire to say things so intensely because she'll more likely feel heard.
0: hmm. Now. When it comes to these three steps of yield theory, listen, validate, explore options, let's go into them a little bit. When it comes to listening, I think a lot of people think, oh, I know how to listen. But in your book, Walking Through Anger, you really break it down and you talk about listening not just to the verbal dimension of what's happening, but how you really presence listening in a multi-dimensional way. So share some about that, the deeper dimensions of listening to someone.
1: Yes, yes, I will. The, the listen, validate, and explore options, I just want to say that the onset, it's so easy to be skeptical of others. It's so easy for us to go... Oh, someone presents something. That's not, we can pick apart. But can we really be skeptical of ourselves, of our own egos? So when I was trying to think about what's the essence of yield theory, I was like, what what action is it? I mean, I sit in a chair and talk to people, or I stand up and talk to people. What do I do? And these were the three things I really realized. These are the actions. Listen, validate, and explore options. And I was speaking one time to 500 mental health specialists, and a woman came up to me at the break, and she was real condescending. And She looked at me, and she goes, that's your big theory, three things? And I said, yes, but if you think about it, all Bruce Lee ever did was move, block, and hit. He did pretty well for himself. <laughs> so, so we might know, like you say, we might know the word listen and say, oh, I know how to listen. But I think it's how you listen, how you validate and how you explore options. So to go into listening more the way I visualize it, think of a box. It, it, think of a big box, like maybe the size of a room. If you're standing on one side of that box, you can only see one, maybe two sides of that box. And if you could visualize that what people are saying to you, they're talking to you from another side of the box. Um, Let me go further and say, imagine that this box, on each side of the box, there are ever-changing images, completely changing constantly. So even if you go around and try to see that person's side, there's going to be other stuff on another side that you don't see. If, if we can realize every time we listen to people, we are only seeing one or two sides of the box, and there is always more, then we move from listening with ego, like I know what they're going to say, I know what this is all about. And then we start to listen from essence and say, what I, I use what I call, even in the book, humble curiosity. Like, teach me about your side of the box. But now we have to do this, Tammy. Now we have to listen, because, and we have to realize there's no way we can ever fully see another person's side of the box. And I, of course, use the box as a reference to the human psyche. We can never see fully. So we can only see our own fully. So if you can approach people and begin to listen to them as though they're on another side of the box, the only way to understand what's happening on that side is to actually listen to them and not think, well, I've been to all sides of the box. I know it all. Well, you can't know it all because as soon as you're on one side, you're automatically not seeing what's going on the other side. And this puts people in a vulnerable position if their ego says, Nope, I want to prove to people that I, I have those experiences. I know what you're going through. Been there, done that. Those are all very invalidating statements. Like you have their answers. You have not only your experiences, but their experiences too. And that position of arrogance really adds to conflict, it doesn't lessen it. So I say listen with humility and say, as, imagine someone's telling you something, and the only way for you to know it is to truly listen. Does that resonate?
0: Yeah, it sounds like what you're saying, I want to check this one part out, is that even if you listen really, really carefully you may be able to see what they're seeing, feel what they're feeling, to some high level of approximation, but it will never be 100% because it's changing and because it's happening to them and that that's part of the deep humility, that you'll never fully know it. Is that correct?
1: Exactly. That's 100%. So I don't say, well, I understand. I say, I understand what you're explaining to me, like I understand my own sense of the word anxiety. I know my own experience of anxiety, but I would never say to someone who's having a panic attack, I know, I know what you're going through because I don't know what they're going through. I know my own experience of experiencing panic attacks. I don't know that person's experience. Um, and so that again, comes back to that humility of setting our ego aside, trying to show others what we know and instead truly being there for them.
0: Yeah, you know, it's interesting when I was thinking about these deeper dimensions of listening, I was thinking about different things you reference in walking through anger, like tone of voice is important so people know that you're listening, your body language is important, eye contact. But what's interesting is those are all kind of behavioral things. I could do all those things right and miss the point you're making right here, which is the humility to not ever presume I have it 100% correct. That's very powerful.
1: Thank you. And it's like, it's beyond validating to hear you articulate that accurately. Like, that's exactly what I had hoped to share is exactly that. Our ego loves to convince us we have the answers. Asymmetric insight is the psychological concept that we, we believe we're really deep and mysterious, but other people, especially those who disagree with us, are shallow and predictable. Right. In other words, we believe when people disagree with us that we see all sides of the box, but they just don't see our side. And obviously, if they saw our side, obviously, they would believe what we believe. Right. But that's, that's it's, uh, it's such a position of arrogance to think that. The truth is enlightenment comes from anyone, anywhere, and any time. And sometimes that means even in the depth of someone who you perceive to be completely different from the way you're journeying through life. And that person also holds that, that, that divine space in them as well.
0: Now, in these three steps, which just for the record, I don't think that this is like, ah, that's really simplistic. Not at all. I think it's incredibly uh, deep to become masterful. One thing I learned from your work about the second step of validation, you write the primary purpose of validation is connection. I thought that was really powerful because sometimes I think when I'm like saying things back to people, my primary purpose is to convince them I heard what they said so that we could please move on. (laughs) I'm not really interested in validating them. I just want them to say, I heard what you said. Can we please move on to the part I like, which is fixing the problem? You know. So that's interesting that that's really the goal of validation is to connect with someone it it
1: really is that's the essence of what we're about we I talk a little bit about it in the book but you know there was a great theory um uh, a hypothesis for why neanderthals might have died out while homo sapiens lived on they discovered that even though neanderthals had bigger brains that because they were bigger physically bigger and they really lived in kind of isolated mountaintop ranges they needed to have better eyesight they were physically so they had a bigger back of their brain area for the eyesight coordination and a smaller part of their brain devoted to social interaction. So the theory, the hypothesis was maybe they died out because, and most of the burial grounds are smaller groups, so maybe they died out because they didn't realize, maybe we realized just how much we need each other, whereas that might not have been such a priority for them. So this human connection, this might be deeply biological that we want to connect with others. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. Help our listeners understand some of the right ways and maybe the not as skillful ways, we could say skillful, not as skillful ways of validating someone, like when you're having a conflict or in any situation when you're trying to meet them.
1: I think the wrong way is to. And you said it in such a lighthearted way, like, and I love that you said it perfectly. Like, if your real goal is to listen is to say, okay, I'm going to validate you to shut you up right now, basically, that's not the right way to do it. If you're validating saying, let me see, you're seeing something I'm not seeing. You see, I look at it that way. If someone disagrees with me and I, maybe I feel strongly about a situation and someone disagrees, my brain jumps to what is it that they're seeing that I'm not seeing? Cause it's something. And so I really want to listen and validate and and make sure I'm hearing accurately what they're saying. Validation, it's it's acknowledgement of what others are going through. So, yes, it definitely is that of what they're saying. You're acknowledging that you're seeing it. But, gosh, does it connect you?
0: Of course, many people, and and I'm one of them, are concerned about the growing divisiveness that many of us are experiencing in American culture, whether it's political divisiveness or divisiveness around various issues. How do you think yield theory and the work that you do could apply to people having discourse around differences of opinion? How would it change discourse? Well,
1: yes, I believe that it's the... I honestly believe it's the key, at least it's the key that that resonates with me. That if we really listen to other people that we ardently disagree with and say, you know what, you're seeing something I'm not seeing, like teach me. But we don't. We only listen for what we want to hear. We use confirmation bias. So this is kind of maybe the wrong way to listen with validation. When you're using confirmation bias, in other words, you're looking to hear what you want to hear. And of course, we're human beings. We. We operate on a continuum when it comes to emotions, opinions, thoughts, all that stuff's a continuum. So when you disagree with others in this discourse, it's saying, "Well, you need to see my side of the box, not let me honestly see your side, not let me see your side so I can prove to you your experience is wrong, but let me see your side." There's a reason one thing led to another in the story of everyone's lives, and when we can lead with compassion and get humble. Genuine curiosity. I think that would radically shift discourse in America and in the world.
0: Now, I know you also, this is maybe I don't understand enough about how yield theory can be applied in a lot of different situations, because I know you also work with athletes and you help top athletic performers. How does yield theory work in a situation like that? Well,
1: but I'll do what I did with the professional basketball team uh, the other day. I talked to them about um, how, they, how ego can interfere with team functioning. If my ego is this is about me and what I can do, um, I'm not going to operate. We're not going to operate as a team as effectively as if we can learn to set our egos aside and really operate as one. So when it comes to sports, that's a that's a that's a real powerful piece, because a huge part of yield theory, one of the fundamental components is conscious education. And conscious education is about teaching, teaching. So I know for me, it was never enough just to listen and validate. It's let's explore options. Where can we go from here? What can you learn? What insight can you get from this moment forward that could really shift where what you're experiencing? Um, and so I do the same thing with athletes. Athletes are human beings. There are moments when you know, a huge part of sports psychology is helping people clear away mental clutter, and so yielding with them, helping them feel not judged and safe enough to say what's going on—that's a huge part of it. But it's also teaching them
0: new things. Can you give me an example from the world of athletics?
1: Uh, yes. Okay. So, let's say um, that uh, someone's in a—I'll just say basketball. So I was with them the other day. Let's say uh, uh, someone's angry at a ref for not making the call that he thought should have been made sure he's living in his cartoon world in that moment like you should have called that foul and you didn't now what do we know about a fast-paced moving game it's already moving down the court so the more you're standing there arguing um, not only are you not involved in the present moment and the play that's happening but you're also in danger of getting you know fouls that will hurt not only you but your team all because you're trying to live in a cartoon world of what should have happened rather than saying this did happen. Now what's the best, most effective way to communicate this to the ref so that should it come up again in the future, it'll be take, it'll be helpful to me and my team, but you have to be able to control that emotion, have that self-discipline. So I tell lots of samurai stories for the, for the guys um, and the men and women. When I, when we're the athletes, like I, I tell lots of the samurai stories because the samurai were extremely self-disciplined in their art. And so it's learning how to learn about yourself, what gets in the way of you really living in at one with the essence of who you are. Because the state of flow doesn't involve thoughts. The state of flow involves being present. So in any performance, we want to be, we don't want to be sitting there thinking about the performance, we want to be doing it.
0: Can you tell me a samurai story?
1: Yes. So there was a uh, samurai who was, uh, oh, let me tell you this one. There was a young man who was in a monastery, and he was being picked on. He was being picked on by the other people in the monastery. He got so upset. So he goes and he says to the master, he says, um, I'm being uh, picked on by the other people in this monastery. I thought they were all holy and they weren't supposed to do this kind of stuff. Well, the master sat there in silence. So he said, I don't think you heard me. I'm telling you they're picking on me. They're they're saying I'm this, they're saying I'm that. They're supposed to be holy. The master sat there in silence. So now this young monk started thinking, well, oh, so you're taking their side. Oh, I see how it is. You're supposed to be so holy, but now you're taking their side. Who do you think you are? So the master says, "Uh, give me your legs. The monk says, what, what are you talking about? I'm trying to tell you they're picking on me. And the master says, cut off your legs and give them to me now. And the monk says, no, no. And the master says, why is it that you defend your body so fiercely, but give away your mind so easily? So, and I realized I told you a Zen monk story, not a samurai story, but I realized I love this concept of give me your legs. So I talk about this with athletes all the time. what, how, in what ways do you give away your legs? In what ways do you give away your mind? Um, th- this, this is a, it's a wonderful starting point, but then we can come back to that time and again. How are you giving away your legs? Well, I was going to say, let's think about that in terms of the discourse that we when we talk about things. How often do we give away our power in two seconds? If someone disagrees with our thoughts or our beliefs or our politics or our religion, the second something happens we're giving away our legs we're we're saying oh you i can't believe you would see things differently from me i think i would much prefer to take the more humble path of saying obviously you've had different life experiences that led you to believe in what you believe and i'm love to learn about it and what's and what's interesting is and this isn't you're not doing it just to get others to listen to you but the the byproduct is people do end up then listening because they're like okay you listened you genuinely listened and they feel heard now they're less likely to be defensive and more likely to say, tell me your perspective.
0: Now, it's interesting this point you've made a couple times about how we get so invested in our cartoon world, you call it, the world that we think should be happening versus what's actually happening. And, you know, what occurred to me is probably most people are living in a cartoon world all day long. I mean, we're (laughs) about what we think, you know, this, that, or the other thing.
1: Yes. Yes. I really, I really believe about a month ago, cause came out of meditation. I was traveling. I called my wife. I said, you know what? I honestly think, you know, I try to simplify stuff all the time. I really think it all comes down to the cartoon world because think about it. Like if you really think this shouldn't have happened, every, every should that comes in your mind until you start to practice it enough. And then you realize this is, this is what's happening. This person is responding this way right now. And so again, People will say cognitively, oh, meet people where they are. That makes sense. But can you actually do it? Not in your cartoon world, but meet them where they actually are. Because once you can do that, it radically shifts the way you interact.
0: Okay, there's one other area I want to talk to you about, Christian, which is your book, Walking Through Anger, a new design for confronting conflict in an emotionally charged world, deals mostly with how to help other people when they're super angry about something. What do you do? What approach do you take if you're a counselor, if you're working in the helping professions, or just with people in your life? But I'm curious, let's say someone's listening right now, and they feel angry about something that's happening in the world. Maybe it's the environmental crisis we're in. They're angry about it. In their cartoon world, This should not be happening. And they might even be offended that we're saying in their cartoon world. It's the world where the earth is respected and loved and cared for. And they're angry about this. How can you help that person walk through their anger?
1: Well, I would say this. Oftentimes we have a shared cartoon world. So we might see, I might say, for instance, you know, I I see... um, people who do the most horrific things to others. So for me, for for the pain that humans cause each other, that probably trumps the physical violence that occurs all over. This is in in my cartoon world, I I would tend to say that shouldn't be happening. The real world is it is happening. And so if I go in the cartoon world and say it shouldn't be happening, what am I really doing? Am I jumping up on a, a, a pedestal, a soapbox and saying, hey, you shouldn't be being violent right now. You shouldn't be torturing and hurting each other. You shouldn't. Okay, great. It's not actually making a difference. Or do I, I say, you know what? The, reality, the real world is people do hurt each other. They cause each other a lot of pain. And if I really want to help them change that, I got to find out where they are and go meet them there. So if you're standing on top of a mountain, I use this analogy in the book, and, and you scream. You so you climb all the way to the top of a mountain. And people on the bottom of the mountain, they're lost. They can't, then they can't find their way. You can stand there and scream all day at them. You should be up here. You should see what I see. You should be in this perspective. You should have gone the way I went. Great. Guess what? You could say the best things in the world, but if they're at the bottom of the mountain, they can't even hear you. So you have to have the discipline to leave where you are and go meet them where they are. And I can, I know people, when I say that, they'll say, well, they shouldn't, I shouldn't have to go meet them there. They should meet me halfway. That's cartoon world. The reality is you're the one who can control you, And if these are the people you're encountering, the job is to meet them where they are and see the world from their perspective. You know, walking through anger does help you handle others. But honestly, I used yield theory to put this book out there in the universe. I thought, what's the easiest way for people to truly learn about what's going on with them? Well, people, our egos are fragile, and we like to say what other people can fix. So when you read these concepts, you say, oh, yes, other people do this. Other people do this. Other people, I do this. I do this. Wait a minute. I think this relates to me. And the two kinds of people thing becomes really real for you because you realize, you know what? When you really learn that people, they have an entire world that you don't see, that impacts how you handle that. When you realize, not just teaching others, that every emotional experience is going to have a beginning, middle, and end, but now you start to be mindful of that in your own experience of an intense emotion, and now you don't have to be as reactive. Actions can't be undone, but when we when we you know the emotions are going to come and go, but actions can't be undone. So I believe that people will read this book thinking, "Oh yes, I can help others with this." The byproduct is going to be, without their ego being um, recognizing it, they're going to be learning about themselves intensely. And there are parts that I just straight up teach that are things that most many people don't know. And, of course, hindsight bias, as soon as we hear them in a simple, we go, oh, I knew that. But a minute prior, we weren't living by that or knowing that. Mm-hmm.
0: All right, Christian, to conclude, our program here is called Insights at the Edge. And part of it is I'm always curious to know what someone's growing edge is, even in relationship to the work that they teach. And when it comes to yield theory and living it in all aspects of your life, what would you say is your edge?
1: I would say that I recognize, I'd, I'd like to share this, as my daughter shared with this, me recently, the best lesson I ever taught her. And I think I'm mindful of this a lot. If I were to give you a bucket and say, what do you want to put in that bucket? I ask you, what would you put in it? Can I, let me ask you, Tammy, what would you put in the bucket if I gave you a bucket?
0: I could put anything in it?
1: Anything you want.
0: Oh, I'd put like beautiful stones, diamonds, and crystals, and yeah, maybe some gold. <laughs> wonderful. Yeah.
1: Beautiful. Wonderful. Okay, so you would have beautiful stones in your bucket then, right? Yep. What you put in your bucket will be in your bucket. Well, the same is true with your mind. If you fill your mind with anger and violence, if you fill your mind with the things that anger you, you're going to be angry. But if you fill your mind with peace, look, we master what we practice. If you fill your mind with peace, you're much more likely to have peace. So I think my edge is my self-talk understanding. You know, I, I, I meditate, I do things like I constantly use the phrase loving kindness in my internal dialogue when there's chaos, when I encounter chaos, when I encounter things that I don't want to be in my psyche. I'm proactive about um, the self-talk that I have. And I recognize, I think probably the biggest strength that I have is I really don't judge people. Like I really understand that I don't know what other people are going through. There's always something more, there's more to the story. So it helps me set my ego aside faster. And I think that's very disarming for people to be around. I think that's the edge, but it doesn't, it doesn't happen because I'm secretly saying, oh, I'm being nice, but I really do believe I have the answers. Like I'm really thinking, I don't know. I'm giving you the best I can in this moment, but I'm open that in the next second, I'm going to learn something that's going to flip my perspective on its edge. And I'm okay with that. Um, I'm curious and I believe, especially when it comes to the discourse around anger and all these different things that it becomes our arrogance that gets in the way. And when we can be genuinely curious, like, teach me, teach me about your side, teach me about it. I really do want to learn. So I'm open to feedback when people see things about me. And I'm really curious about other people in the human psyche.
0: I've been speaking with Dr. Christian Conti. He's the creator of Yield Theory and the author of the new book, walking through anger a new design for confronting conflict in an emotionally charged world the yield theory approach sounds simple but it's really deep and really useful i recommend it thank you for listening to insights at the edge you can read a full transcript of today's interview at soundstrue.com forward slash podcast and if you're interested hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. And also, if you feel inspired, head to iTunes and leave Insights at the Edge a review. I love getting your feedback, being in connection with you, and learning how we can continue to evolve and improve our program. Working together, I believe we can create a kinder and wiser world. SoundsTrue.com, waking up the world.